Ahoy, motherfuckers. Welcome to Hindsight. I'm Derek, and as always, I'm joined by my one of the best in the business, Brandon. Um, and today, since we are talking Quentin Tarantino month and we are talking Pulp Fiction, I thought that there was no one better to join us for this episode than the gentleman who is literally a walking encyclopedia of Pulp Fiction. I mean, literally, his show's name is Conversations at the Jack at Jack Rabbit Slims, a, a Pulp Fiction podcast. Like, if you couldn't get him, we were going to get you here for From Dust Till Dawn, but that just didn't make sense. So, <laughs> Craig from uh, Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims, tell him something about yourself. Tell him something about your show. The floor is yours. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me. I always appreciate when people reach out to me. Um, you know, to come on a podcast. And I know you were uh, kind enough to come on my podcast a couple months ago and, and talk about it. Yeah. So every uh, month, well, first Friday of every month uh, on conversations at Jackrabbit Slims, we just have a casual conversation about the movie. Sometimes we go off topic, we go wherever the conversation takes us. And I think it's really interesting. And it's also exposed me to a lot of new uh, podcast buddies like you, Derek. Um, and in addition to podcasters, we've had on screenwriters and film composers. So it's, it's a nice sort of glance at what Pulp Fiction fandom looks like. I'm located mm -hmm. here in Las Vegas, married, have two little uh, Yorkie uh, dogs that keep me kind of busy <laughs> and, uh, you know, just uh, enjoy podcasting. Good. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm doing you're wonderful. Always, you are always great. Is there ever a day where you're less than great? Yeah, all the time. Brandon, have you ever felt less than fresh to death? Mm, no, I wash every day. <laughs> I'm fresh to death right now. <laughs> so today, as we said, we're talking about Pulp Fiction, the 1994 classic uh, by Quentin Tarantino. Um you know, let's start off the way we always start. Craig, when was the first time you saw Pulp Fiction and what were your memories of seeing it then? Oh, October 94, when it came out. I think I saw it the second weekend. It was in theaters. And um, my parents had went and saw it first, my mom and my stepdad. And I remember them coming back on that Saturday night opening weekend and my mom just being like, amazing. You have to go see it. Mm -hmm. I, was like, I was planning on it. But if my mom likes it, that's pretty amazing. So I went and saw it that next week and it completely changed the film landscape for me. <laughs> Prior to that, I, I mean, I, I was a film guy, you know, mm -hmm. growing up, I watched, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, Star Wars movies. I mean, I was, a, I was a film fan, but Pulp Fiction was the movie for me that kind of just clicked in my head that there was an art to it yeah. and there were people behind the scenes making decisions that impacted the movie you saw. And I realized, okay, so this Quentin Tarantino dude, he made all the decisions that made the movie that's on the screen in front of me. And if a different filmmaker had that script, the movie might've come out differently. So mm -hmm. it really made me more aware of the art of film and uh, really launched me into like being a true film lover and the discovering other filmmakers and, um, films that you know sort of influenced Tarantino and made him who he was mm -hmm. so for me it was just a really like it was like a milestone film for me and I was on board with Quentin you know from that point on 
<laughs> you know, I have found that most people's first experience with Quentin isn't Reservoir Dogs. Like my first experience wasn't Reservoir Dogs. It was this. Um, and a lot of people found this and then went backwards. And I always wanted to look and see uh, how popular Reservoir Dogs was when it first came out, as opposed to if it became more after folks went and saw Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs just didn't have a big theatrical run. I mean, it was a true, true indie film. Mm -hmm. um, but without Reservoir Dogs, you wouldn't have had Pulp Fiction. You mm -hmm. know, uh, Reservoir Dogs got Tarantino, you know, the deal with Sony that eventually turned into Miramax, you know, making Pulp Fiction. So, mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, I, you know what? I think I've talked to one person that had seen Reservoir Dogs before Pulp Fiction, um, so they knew what they were in for. But, yeah, I mean, you had to be really, really in the loop to, you know, be on board with Reservoir Dogs because I, I haven't looked, but, I mean, it didn't play in a lot of theaters. <laughs> Brandon, when was the first time you saw Pulp Fiction? If you say it was today, I'm going to leave the show. No, I've seen Pulp Fiction before. Um, I just don't know when the first time I've seen it. It's probably sometime in the late 90s. Uh, 99 2000 around that time i would imagine i remember watching it and being like oh look because samuel l jackson was really popular then i was like mm -hmm. i wonder what he used to be in and i feel like this is the movie that kind of like made him yeah uh to an extent and so uh i, I kind of went back and wanted to watch that and um yeah i watched it again yesterday and it's even better than I remember. I haven't watched it in like maybe right. four or five years, but it's even better than I remember. Okay, so a few things. One, I saw this in 1994. I know that I don't know exactly when. I don't think it was like opening weekend or the weekend after. It was probably when it came to the dollar theaters down the street from my house. Those are the ones that my parents didn't give a fuck what I went to see. Like there could be <laughs> porn at the regular theater and they'd be like, no. And then it could come to the dollar theater and I would go. My mom would be like, have fun uh, because it was a dollar. They didn't give a fuck as long as it cost a dollar. Um, I remember when I saw this movie, the thing I remember the most is just, and I'm closing my eyes when I say this, listeners. Have you ever taken a bite of ice cream, vanilla ice cream? And then while you have the vanilla ice cream in your mouth, you take a bite of like warm apple pie with like caramel on it. And, and even though it's two different things, they mix together so well that you can't imagine what that bite would have been like without one of the two of them. When I saw Pulp Fiction, two things hit me and melted together perfectly. And it was the music of Pulp Fiction and how every single scene was either a monologue or a soliloquy. There were no wasted words. Like every single frame of this movie leads to something classic. Um, there's different, as we know, different parts of the movie, like the, uh, the the Jackrabbit Slim scene and the Honey Bunny and Pumpkin at the at the cafe, at the restaurant, and you know uh, Butch and and Zed and 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 Marcellus. But each single part has some sort of iconic writing in it. And there's not a lot of movies where you can say that, where there's like memorable things throughout. Um, 
I think I saw it like four times because it only cost me four dollars. No big loss. Um, and I left there and I was like, I want more of this in my life. I was 14 years old. And so um, after that, it, it, it wasn't something where it was like uh, Quentin Tarantino's my number one dude. That didn't happen until he came out with uh, Kill Bill. But this was definitely the thing that it was like, okay, whenever something, whenever he puts something out, I need to be sure to take notice of it and pay attention to it. Yeah. One thing you said there, I think is really important, Derek, you know, you sort of talked about the dialogue in the film and how there are no wasted words. And just to sort of piggyback on that, it's really, really true that I think a lot of the Pulp Fiction, quote unquote, I'm doing the air quotes here, um, imposters or, you know, um, knockoff films that came out you know tarantino sort of you know kick-started a whole pulp fiction genre if you will yeah and the thing about pulp fiction is every bit of dialogue in that movie means something even if you don't know it when you're watching it but for example at the beginning of the movie uh vincent and jules are talking about uh tony rocky hara mm-hmm. marcellus you know threw off that balcony and you're what you know, it, it just seems like a kind of cool random story they're telling, but then you learn that he's taking Mia on a you know, he's taking care of Mia while uh, Marcel is, is out of town. And then that conversation about Tony Rocky Horror it informs the whole Jack Rabbit Slim scene mm-hmm. because Travolta or Vincent is sort of dancing around how to approach it with Mia, and he wants to find out what happened with Tony Rocky Horror, but he's not sure how to approach it. So you've got this weird sort of bit of tension between the two of them until they broach the subject. And I think if you look at any sequence in the movie, all the dialogue drives something that's happened or is going to happen. And I think that's uh, something that a lot of the imposters sort of, you know, lost. They were just like, oh, I'm just going to have people say cool things. And, you know, the Tony Rocky Horror uh, story, which for those of y'all who don't know, we're just going to uh, be discussing this movie more or less. Uh, I figure everybody's seen Pulp Fiction umpteen times. Um, the Tony Rocky, Rocky Horror uh, situation was he got thrown out off a four, out of a four-story window, landed through a greenhouse, had a speech impediment. <laughs> um, the reason why they believe it happened is because he gave me a foot massage. And so when Vincent goes on this uh, outing, with Mia, he does have trepidation. Like, I don't want to get too close to you because of what happened with Tony. Uh, But as soon as Mia's like, no, Tony didn't fuck me. He didn't rub my feet. He didn't do anything. What happened between Tony and and my husband or between Tony and my, it's only between Tony and my husband. I have no idea why he got thrown out the window. But as soon as that happened, I noticed that there was a sudden and dramatic shift in Vincent's mindset because when he went back to Mia's house afterwards he went into the bathroom and now instead of him saying I'm going to take her out I'm going to shake hands you know I'm going to be a nice babysitter and all that now he's like I'm going to take her out I'm going to shake hands I'm going to go home and jack off because all of a sudden now he's letting these emotions and attraction that he was scared to have beforehand uh, come out and I just thought that was fascinating. I didn't even really pick up on that until this last watching. And that's the way it always turns out that on like the seventh watch, I'll find something new. 
And with this movie, that's definitely happening. Like, for example, at the beginning of the movie, where Honey Bunny and Pumpkin are talking about robbing uh, the, the restaurant, um, and they're, they're right, it's brilliant. Nobody would see, a, see it coming if you rob a restaurant. Like, if I'm sitting in a Denny's with a fork halfway to my mouth, I'm not thinking defense. If, if Jules and Vincent hadn't been in the restaurant, this would have been a perfect, like, operation. But you can actually hear Vincent and Jules talking while they're setting up this robbery idea. And I didn't hear that until today. And it literally blew my mind how much thought went into this whole movie. I just thought that was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, somebody on YouTube... Uh, a few years back recut this video in chronological order some movie so they 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 recut the video starting with the gold watch scene and then going all the way to the end and how it should be in chronological order and it it's not i'm not saying it's better that way but it you see all these things that they were sewing in mm-hmm. to different parts of the film when you watch it in chronological order it's actually pretty amazing because you'll lose something in the time frame like when the robbery happens, they don't go back to it until damn near the end of the movie. But if you have it in that order, then yeah, it's hitting you right then that, okay, this is all leading up to this part. Um, also, when Jules is telling Vincent that he's just going to become a drifter, he's going to walk the earth like David Carradine and Kung Fu, Kill Bill Part Two. he's a drifter named Rufus who works in a... Um, who works as a as an organ player in Texas. And so these things, like when you see it and you're like, you know what? You know what? One of our friends, um, and then we will actually get into discussing other things about this movie. But one of our friends, Jeff, who uh, runs the Jeff vs. the World podcast, he was watching this yesterday and saw the part where uh, Zed, with Zed and Butch and Marcellus, and he sees... Um, Butch, when he's trying to pick out a weapon to go back and help Marcellus, Marcellus, and he pulls out a samurai sword. Jeff was like, is that a Hattori Hanzo katana? And I, you know what? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. It just, it all marries so well together. Once you see that movie, then you start looking back to this movie. Um, Also, in Reservoir Dogs, there's a character, Mr. Blonde, who is uh, Vic Vega. He's Vincent Vega's brother. So all of these things are within the same universe. Okay, Brandon, I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, keep going. I'm sorry. So also, um, just a side note, never really noticed that um, Tim Ross character is like super, not super racist, but he is not subtle about it. <laughs> like talking about uh asian folks and his his stereotypes towards the asian folks and um so they are sitting there at the restaurant talking about robbing a bank uh, instead uh, of robbing a restaurant instead of robbing a bank because nobody sees it coming and it's pretty damn smart and so they're like you know what i love you pumpkin i love you honey bunny honey bunny is sitting there looking all just when she's initially talking about it she sounds real unsure of herself and that fades away real quick when she's like, she hops up. She's like, any one of y'all motherfuckers move and I'll execute every last motherfucking one of you. And we're off to the races. 
Like Miserable starts playing in the background, and then Jungle Boogie starts playing in the background, and that's the first thing you see in the movie. Yeah, is it's the one of the best intros I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, and that's actually a great sort of auto audible cue. You know, when the dial turns from Miserable to to a Cool in the Gang, um, that's like a, a for me it was an audible cue that like, hey, this movie isn't going to serve up everything exactly the way you expect it. Mm-hmm. And just tuning through the radio station was just such a cool little cue for me, at least as a as a viewer. And uh, I always appreciate that. And I just love the fact that this movie I love film scores. I'm a music guy. Mm-hmm. But the fact that all the music in this movie was sourced, it was from somewhere and it wasn't a traditional score. And I think that completely helps contribute to the overall feel of the movie. Um, I really loved how. Once that got done, they faded into uh, Vincent and Jules on their way to a job. You don't even know what they're on their way to. You don't even know what the job is. They're just talking. And like all I said, of his movies just pick up in the middle of some shit. Yeah, because Reservoir Dogs picks up in the middle of them talking about breakfast and why the fuck they don't tip. <laughs> and like oh, a virgin, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, the very first thing that we get to. No, that's not the very first thing we get to see. You be quiet. The very first thing we get to see with uh, Vincent and and Jules is them discussing a Royale with cheese. Um, And this is, again, one of those things that anybody who knows the film, knows knows where this came from, knows what this is about, you can pretty much uh, quote it word for word, talking about how things are just different. And, and, and so and tell me again about the hash bar. Okay, what you want to know? Hash is legal there, right? That's legal, but ain't 100% legal. I mean, you just can't walk into a restaurant, roll the joint, and start puffing away. I mean, they want you to smoke in your home or certain designated places. And those are hash bars. Yeah, it breaks down like this, okay? It's, it's legal to buy it, it's legal to own it. And if you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. It's legal to carry it, but, but, but that doesn't matter because get a load of this, all right? If you get stopped by a cop in Amsterdam, it's illegal for them to search you. I mean, that's the right the cops in Amsterdam don't have. Oh, man, I'm going. That's all it is to it. I'm fucking going. <laughs> no, baby, you dig it the most. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer at McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> I can play that whole scene all the way through. And that's the thing about Pulp Fiction is literally each scene takes like, it's like a, like I said, it's an eight to nine minute, just barrage of beauty. And you don't know why it works. And these guys are having this conversation while they're going to collect their boss, Marcellus Wallace's shit. We never find out what the shit actually is. There's been a ton of speculation about what it might have been. Um, Quentin What's has, in the briefcase? Quentin has said it's a MacGuffin. 
he doesn't know. It's yellow we, cake. Don't drop that <laughs> shit. Don't drop it. <laughs> but um, we have come to the conclusion that it's Marcellus's soul because of the Band-Aid on the back of the neck. And I think that that's become part of the lexicon, that it's uh, that it's the Band-Aid. But they are going up to this uh, apartment uh, where these guys are pretty much flopping at who have Marcellus's shit. And while they're Why do they that, have Marcellus's soul? That's a good question. I asked their their business. Don't get full of yourself. I like you a lot. You asked. No, I wasn't asking that question in a negative way. I was saying, why do they have it? I want to know more. No, I I wish they'd have a background story with them because that the Brett is actually I I he's one of those guys who whenever I see him, I'm like, I know that guy. I just never remember where I know Brett from, and I know it's Phil Lamar. So, um. You know, Samurai Jack is in that scene and then the other guy. But um, they're talking about the foot massage and how it's how in um, in Vincent's eyes. And that that carries over too. that in in Vincent's eyes, a foot massage is grounds to throw somebody over a balcony. Whereas Jules like Vincent says, I think it's a bit of an overreaction. No, wasn't that Jules who said it was a bit of an overreaction? No, Jules says he doesn't believe it. Jules was like, he had to do more than a foot massage. Because remember, he started asking Vincent about, like, you know, nobody's going to do that for a foot massage. Like, you know, and then Vincent was like, how many men have you given a foot massage to? And he he was like, fuck "Fuck you, you, motherfucker. (laughs) Because Vincent was like, no, it's an overreaction. It was one of those things where it's like that Chris Rock stuff where it was like, I wouldn't do it, but I understand. I understand, yeah. Yeah. And so I, 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 yeah, I, I know my technique for foot massages. And I also know that I have never given a guy a foot massage, but there's no, if I worked as a masseuse, I mean, I would, it's just that that situation never come around where my dad was like, yo, rub my feet. It's just a thing where guys aren't like, yo, rub my feet real quick. They, my bunions dog. So I don't have to worry about it, but they knock on the door Brett and his two friends are in there. Uh, well, actually, three friends, we find out. And um, everything's iconic. Like, Brett is eating a big kahuna burger. If we knew what the future was going to hold for that company going <laughs> forth in Quentin Tarantino land. Um, Jules is like, yeah, you know. And I'm paraphrasing, y'all. I apologize for nothing. Jules is like, yeah. I love burgers. Hey, you want a bite of this burger, Vincent? Vincent's like, no, nah, I'm not hungry. I love burgers. My my girl, she she doesn't let me eat them as much as I like to. Can I have a bite of your burger, Brett? Brett's like, yeah. Jules like, cool. And what's that right there? He was like, it's a Sprite. Ooh, Sprite. Can I have a sip of your tasty beverage? And literally, while looking over the front of the, while looking over the top of the cup, stares at Brett. And if Brett didn't know at that point in time he was in danger, he should have, because he sucked the life out of that soda. You just don't do that to somebody whose life you're going to spare. Um, and then we get to the... I mean, what... I, okay, let me see if I can find this right, in the right spot. The scene of all scenes, which is quite simply, what does Marcellus Wallace look like? Um, and it's it's one of those things where you can definitely appreciate 
where both sides are coming from. But at the same time, Brett just sounds so confused. Like they didn't expect to get into this just from fucking with Marcellus Wallace and whatever case they have. We have Vincent. We happy? Yeah, we happy. Look, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I didn't get your name. I got yours, uh, Vincent. Right? But, but I, I never got your. My name's Pitt, and your ass ain't talking your way out of this shit. No, no, no. I just want you to know. I just want you to know how sorry we are that, that things got so fucked up with us and, and Mr. Wallace. It, 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 we, we got into this thing with the best intentions, really. I never... I gotta stop right there. How'd he know he killed that dude? Because that was literally a no-look shot. <laughs> Divine intervention. He pulled the gun, kind of glanced over, pulled the trigger and killed the dude, and then was like... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions? What's the matter? Oh, you were finished? Oh, well, allow me to retort. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? What? What country are you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again. Say what again. I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch. No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to pick. And my son Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. Somebody mentioned to me that that is a direct sign, a direct lead towards what happens with Marcellus and Zed. No. Oh. Some, somebody brought that up, like in passing. You read the Bible, Greg? Yes. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. It also set up uh, Pinky on next Friday. I know he took that scene with Craig in the in record store. 
came exactly from this. Say another motherfucking thing. <laughs> Ooh, I'm, say, this was before this. I think Samuel L. Jackson was in smaller roles. Like he was Gator in Jungle Fever. Um, he was the uh, guy that robs the McDowell's in uh, Coming to America. Yes. Yep. But other than that, this is the movie that definitely put him on the map. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he said he made it roll for him originally. But then the other dude came in. I was reading like the other dude, the dude who played um, Paul at the bar, Paul, yeah, the, the, the bartender. Yeah, he came in and auditioned and blew them away to the point that Samuel L. Jackson had to come back and re-audition to secure his role. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Sam. <laughs> like, I mean, this is a role that when somebody writes a role for you and then somebody else comes in and almost takes it, that's some good-ass work. Like, this, see, like, I don't know, I'm stumbling just thinking about how much this just pops. Um. So the next thing that happens after they pull the trigger is they go to Butch. And one thing you need to know about Pulp Fiction, if you haven't already seen it, if you haven't already seen it, please stop and just go watch it. It's like an hour and 30, hour and 45 minutes. And it is excellent. No, it's, it's two hours and 24 minutes. God, it feels so much <laughs> shorter than that. It does. It does. Okay, it's two hours and 24 minutes, but it still just flows like quickly and so the next scene that happens is uh butch is at uh the bar with marcellus wallace and marcellus is talking with him about hey um let me tell you about pride like pride's a motherfucker and you don't need it um so what's gonna happen is you're gonna feel a little bit of a twinge on you and that's pride and you just got to say fuck pride because pride never helps. Pride only hurts. And uh, Marcel, well, Marcellus Wallace is played by Ving Rhames. Butch is played by uh, Bruce Willis. And there's a scene on here, and we were talking about how the words that are used um, carry over to each like they have a deeper meaning for a while at the scene where Marcellus is talking to him and he's like, uh, are you my nigga? And Butch says, it seems that way. Yes. I was like, but then it hit me that he's not saying like Marcellus is saying it with like the hard, like with the a, but Bruce is referring or Butch is referring it to it. Like, the ER, like I'm your slave. I'm real ignorant for doing this for you. And you must think I'm ignorant. It would appear so, is what he says back to him when he says, Are you my nigga? It would appear so, but guess what? I'm not. I'm not. So the next thing that happens is that um after he gets paid to go down in the fifth, say it back to me. In the fifth, I go, your ass goes down in the fifth. My ass goes down. Um Vincent and Jules have come into the bar. When I first saw this movie, I was like, why are their clothes different? Is it another day? Like, what exactly happened? Um, But Vincent is standing at the bar, 
and waiting for Marcellus to finish talking to Butch. Butch comes over to get some cigarettes and um, they have a little tete-a-tete, Butch and Vincent, uh, where Vincent ends up calling him a palooka. Uh, such a such a nuanced word, palooka. Um, but he's like, what you looking at, palooka? <laughs> and um, Butch gets told to get out and he leaves. He doesn't get told to get out, but he leaves. Um, this is funny to me because later on in the movie, Vincent is complaining about how somebody keyed his car. <laughs> yep. And it was Butch. It was Butch. Butch keyed his shit. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know that that car, that um that convertible has a an incredible history. That car after Pulp Fiction went missing. Mm-hmm. It, it got stolen basically. And it ended up uh, a guy legally purchased it and started to restore it. And I don't remember the entire story, but he took it somewhere and somebody, I guess, ran the VIN number and they found Vincent's Cadillac or his, his car, which mm-hmm. had been missing for something like, I think, close to 20 years at that point. Um, which is just amazing that you can make a movie in 1994 and then the car just mysteriously disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like a car from the 60s or 70s. You know, I can understand movie cars from that, those eras disappearing. But um, it, it's it's a pretty cool story. So now this guy owns the Pulp Fiction car, which is which is kind of cool. And didn't even know it. Yeah, <laughs> that's dope. So after that is the date with Mia and Butch or Mia and, and Vincent. I'm sorry. But before that happens. Vincent, we find, is a is a heroin addict. Yeah, or he he's a cop, he's a yeah. he's a he's 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 got a bit of a drug problem. I'm trying to think of the best way to put a this. bit, a bit, like you know, buying eight balls of like the the hard shit type heroin. Yeah, just a bit, just a, a unput, just a little. Um, but he's he goes to get his uh, eight ball of the real shit um, from, I forget what his, what his Lance, Lance. Yeah. Lance was the original um, character that Tarantino wanted, wanted to play. Originally Tarantino slotted himself in to play uh, Lance. And then he realized that he needed to be behind the camera for the, uh, the adrenaline shot Mm -hmm. scene. So that's when they found Eric Stoltz and he sort of pivoted over to play Jimmy later, who we see later in the movie. And it's, it's interesting that um, he, I mean, this is just me being me. Um, it's interesting that he was either going to play Lance or he was going to play Jimmy as those are the two white characters in the movie that say nigger. <laughs> <laughs> so either way he went, he wasn't going to lose. And so Lance is talking to him and he's like, um, He's like, can I get uh, Vince is like, can I get you know some heroin? And Lance is like, what kind do you want? He was like, how much? How about this much? And he was like, do I look like a nigger? Does, does this look like like I sell that kind of heroin? Nah, this that top of the line shit. This that real shit, homie. I'm gonna give you some of my private stash. So they're all heroin users. Um, and then he tells his wife, hey Trudy, 
can you bring in some baggies? He was like, I don't have any balloons. I'm going to put in a baggie for you. This is important because after the date with Mia, I sat there and thought about, okay, why does she just, she's been doing cocaine this whole time. Why is she doing that? But because heroin generally comes in balloons, not in baggies. So Mia thought that this was cocaine. It was just like, I'm going to take a regular hit. And because cocaine is a stimulant and heroin is a depressant, she immediately overdosed. That's why she got to where she was. And that's one thing that got me was that a lot of the stuff that happened as far as that was like some straight inside baseball type shit where you would have to know about the nuances of the drug game. And I didn't when I first saw it, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Brandon, you like you were about to say something with your face? No, I was saying I agree. So he gets his drugs and he rides off down the street and he comes to pick up Mia. And while he's coming to pick up Mia, um, she comes out. It's, it's, it's Uma Thurman. I have forgotten how young she looks in this movie. Uh, Uma has a wig that literally swallows her entire face in it. All you can really see is her big ass eyes. And I Tarantino wanted Julie Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, for that role. I can see that. I mean, I'm glad it ended up being Uma, but you know, I, I could definitely see that being pulled off because I saw her in Veep. Yeah, yeah. And there's actually a deleted scene that occurs here. I don't know if either one of you guys have seen it that sort of informs some of the conversations they have in the car right when they get out uh, at Jackrabbit Slim's. Um, she references. Um, an Elvis man saying an Elvis man would love it. Um, and basically it's like um, a sequence where instead of seeing Mia's feet come out, mm-hmm. she's got like a, you just see her, her point of view through like an eight millimeter camera. And she interviews Vincent. Basically she asks him if he's a Beatles man or, or uh, an Elvis guy. Um, just asks him a whole, a whole series of questions. And I know Tarantino said he, he took the scene out because in the early nineties, a lot of filmmakers were sort of doing that, you know, I, I guess sex lies in videotape sort of yeah. um, type of, of scenario. So he said he thought it was too run of the mill or too predictable. So he took that scene out. But when she says an Elvis man should love it, that's a callback to a scene that was deleted. And, and, and I kind of actually still love the fact that we don't know why she knows he's an Elvis guy, but she, but she does. And that deleted scene, um, verifies it. I know all those deleted scenes are on YouTube and I I think they're on the Blu-ray. Okay. I um, was fortunate enough to get the Tarantino collection on Vudu for like $24. Oh, wow. So I got Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, From Dust Till Dawn, Reservoir Dogs, Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 for like $24. That's great. Yeah. That's, man. Yeah, it's incredible. I haven't seen a deal like that since, but I I keep looking. Um, So they make it to Jackrabbit Slims and they go in and um, all Vincent wants is a steak. He's like, I want to go to a steakhouse. She's like, you can get steak at Jackrabbit Slims. Okay, cool. So they go in and I wish this was a real place. Like Jackrabbit Slims looks like it would be a lot of fun. It looks like one of those places like they would have in Vegas, you know. Um, and they sit down and, and 
one thing, the only thing, maybe, no, there's two things that I had a problem with. This is one. The other one was Quentin Tarantino saying dead nigger storage over and over again. <laughs> but um, he sits down, they sit down, their server comes over to take their order and he asks for a steak. I don't remember what kind of steak it was, but he asked for a steak and the server says, do you want it? burnt to a crisp or bloody as hell. That's yeah. literally the one problem I have with this movie. As a chef, no restaurant is going to ask you if you want a steak cooked well done. They're not even going to offer it. Like, <laughs> I don't remember what it was like in the 90s, though, so I can't put too much of a fault on it. But no, they're going to, how would you like that cooked? Are you sure you want it burnt to a crisp? Like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad now, you got it bloody as hell. You know who that who that Buddy Holly server was, right? Mm -mm. Okay, he's a he was in Reservoir Dogs, one of Tarantino's buddies, Steve Buscemi. Oh, yeah, I didn't even notice that that was him actually. <laughs> like, and yeah, just a okay. quick little cameo, you know, Tarantino taking care of his buddies, right? Just in and out. <laughs> and um, uh, me five gets, dollar shake isn't that hard to believe nowadays either. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, <laughs> me got a five dollar shake, and they were like, "What a five dollar shake!" And I was like, "How much do shakes cost back then?" Like in '94, I guess my parents wouldn't allow me to get a milkshake when we went to McDonald's. Like, so I don't know, but a five dollar shake is not far fetched. Like, you can get a ten dollar shake now. Like here in Vegas, you can get fifteen dollar shakes. <laughs> exactly, and they are magical. So, yo, you drink that shake and you be happy, Vincent. So they um, are eating, or they're they're sitting down talking. Um, and you know Mia, what that restaurant reminds me of? Like a restaurant in a theme park. Yeah, like, like something they would have in Disney World. Yeah, yeah, like the sci-fi driving. Uh, mm -hmm. What is it? The drive-in theater. Yeah, well, I forgot what it's called at Disney down there. And so they're talking and um, Mia mentioned that she was part of a, well, Jules earlier in the conversation that he had with Vincent during the, uh, before they went in and shot up Brett, has a conversation with Vincent about Mia being in a pilot. Um, and Vincent was like, what's a pilot? And he was like, well, you know how TV shows have. And Vincent was like, well, I don't watch shows. I don't watch TV. I always hate people who, I don't watch TV. Like, okay, you pump as fuck. But he was like, just for the sake of argument, there are some shows that make it and there's some shows that don't. Her show was one of the shows that didn't. And so Vincent is asking her about her pilot and her pilot was a show called Fox Force 5 about five deadly assassins you can't tell me that there's a there's a a story going around where kill bill is the pilot for mia's movie or mia's tv show and i love that idea too um, she gets her $5 shake and it tastes just like it should. It's a vanilla milkshake. I would think it would be a vanilla milkshake. And then they would put, make sure it's vanilla bean and then put some actual vanilla extract into it to make it extra vanilla. -y Amos and, it, and Andy is what she should have got. A chocolate one? The Amos and Andy. Yeah. How would I, I, you know, I thought about it and I was like, 
I love eating chocolate, but I just can't get past, I can't see the nuance of a chocolate milkshake. It, it's just too much for my senses. But a vanilla milkshake, the cool thing about getting a vanilla milkshake in a restaurant is that you can actually discern the taste of the whipped cream. You could taste the, the cherry that goes on top. You could taste the cherry juice that goes through it and, and just everything. With chocolate, all you're getting is chocolate, chocolate whipped cream and chocolate cherry taste. And now I want a milkshake. This is wild. I'm never going to lose weight doing shows with you, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. So uh, she's like, hey, they're quiet for a second, which is nice. I love quiet, but she doesn't. She's like, don't just hate those uncomfortable silences. Uh, do you wish that sometimes you don't have to feel like you have to force a conversation? And he was like, um, well... She was like, I'm going to get up and go to the bathroom. When I come back, have something to say. That's when they have the conversation about Tony Rocky Horror. Um, and Vincent is like, we heard he fell out of a window. And another way to say it was that he was thrown out by Marcellus. And yet another way to say it was that he's thrown out of Marcellus, out of the window by Marcellus because of you. And it just showed how much guys, you know, gossip just like ladies do. Yeah, another thing, Derek, about this scene that I, I like and I think is kind of understated, and this scene alone illustrates why performers got nominated for Oscars, but if you watch this scene and remember that Vincent shot up prior to picking up Mia, mm -hmm. his whole performance is, is sort of reflective of that. His words are a little slower than normal. Mm -hmm. His delivery is a little different. And um, I think that really helps when he's sort of getting to the point with Mia. Uh, I, I just think it's a sort of under undervalued aspect of the scene that I, I think a lot of people don't appreciate. And now that you and, mention it, I was I, I I when I was watching it earlier because there's a twist contest, and Mia's like, I want to be in this, and we're gonna win. So take off your shoes and come work with me because my my husband said you're going to do whatever I want. When they're doing the twist, Mia is really into it, like facial expressions and everything. And Vincent just looks like almost like a zombie, like he's standing stock still straight up and there's no like real change in his face. Like in him being high on heroin, that's like a real what they say, a real ass kicker. What have you looking like that? Like, oh my God, this is who I'm twisting. <laughs> yeah. By the and, way, they, and, and, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and and that's that was kind of a cool little Easter egg, if you will, for people because we all know and love Travolta from you know Saturday Night Fever, mm -hmm. um, and you know he was the sort of the disco dance king in that, and then you get him dancing in this. And um, if you go on YouTube, there's actually footage of Tarantino directing the scene. So you can see Tarantino doing the twist as well. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he does the twist exactly how you'd imagine he does. <laughs> I just, one of my favorite things about that scene is being able to walk away from it and falling in love with Teenage Wedding. Like, I love that song. Whenever I hear it, I think about that twist scene. So well, yeah, went. and that's another thing that's, that's, you know, most filmmakers would write a scene where they do the twist and then they would play the twist, mm. but not Tarantino. You get that. You get that Chuck Berry, and it works perfectly with the scene. Mm -hmm. I, uh, again, iconic scene. So they go back to Mia's house, 
Vincent has to go and use the restroom. While he's using the restroom, he's talking to himself in the mirror because, again, now he knows Tony Rocky Horror didn't try and rub her feet. While he's giving himself a pep talk in the mirror because he's high, Mia finds the heroin and snorts it, mistaking it for cocaine, and she has an overdose. So Vincent comes out and sees her. And he's like, oh, shit. Oh, no, nah, I'm going to fucking get killed because my boss's wife that I'm supposed to be watching out for just had a fucking heroin overdose right in front of me, and it's my shit. He puts her into his car and speeds off towards Lance's house. He calls Lance, and he's like, Lance, I'm on my way. He, Lance like, are you on a cell phone? Wrong number, wrong number, hang up. Nope. Vincent drives up on the curb, drives onto the, the lawn, and runs into the house like, yo, you got to help me. This is Marcellus Wallace's wife. If she dies, he going to torture me. And I might be forced to slip where I got the drugs from. And then they going to come after you. So they bring her into the house where they have an EpiPen, more or less. Back then, I didn't know that epinephrine was uh, something that was going to save my son's life later on in life. But it did. So thanks for that. The shot of adrenaline that they put directly into her chest was literally one of the grossest things I had seen up to that point in my life. Um, they shot that scene in reverse, too. That's dope. So, yeah. like, they had their needle the needle in and they pulled it out and then they shot it in reverse. I can see that because, to yeah, that would cause some serious damage. Yeah. Oof. And the one thing I really love about that is the thump. You, like the sound design on that is so good. Like you hear the thump of like his fist hitting her chest. Like mm-hmm. it just, you know, it's, it's so great. And then of course, um, Rosanna Arquette, you know, watching this whole thing unfold, like she's like, just, she's in it. Mm-hmm. She's in the, she's in that moment as pissed as she was that, you know, her, her sleep got interrupted she's there and she's like a, a willing and uh you know active viewer of this scene that's unfolding before her and i think like that's the other thing about this movie guys is like every role every performance is perfect like i mean like she's a throwaway jody's like a throwaway character mm-hmm. in most movies but like rosanna arquette like her performance pitch perfect She's like the she's like the viewer in that scene. Exactly, like, like this, us. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. This, oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So um, after that, they drive back to um, they drive back to Mia's house, and Mia's and uh, you know Vincent's like you're not gonna tell you know Marcellus about what happened, and Mia's like no. No, that's between us. And the scene ends. Uh, the next thing we see is Christopher Walken playing a Vietnam vet who, uh, Captain Kuhn, uh, who is bringing a watch and, and keeping a promise to a veteran who uh, passed away. Now, do you remember when I told you your daddy died in the POW camp? This here is Captain Coons. He was in the POW camp with Daddy. Hello, little man. Boy, I sure heard a bunch about you. 
See, I was a good friend of your dad's. We were in that Hanoi pit of hell together over five years. Hopefully, you'll never have to experience this yourself, but when two men are in a situation like me and your dad were for as long as we were, you take on certain responsibilities of the other. If it had been me who would not made it, Major Coolidge, you'd be talking right now to my son, Jim. The way it turned out, I'm talking to you. Butch. I got something for you. This watch I got here was first purchased by your great-grandfather during the First World War. It was bought in a little general store in Knoxville, Tennessee. Made by the first company to have make wristwatches. Up till then, people just <laughs> carried pocket watches. It was bought by private doughboy Orion Coolidge on the day he set sail for Paris. This was your great-grandfather's war watch, and he wore it every day he was in that war. And, and he'd done his duty, went home to your great-grandmother, took the watch off, put an old coffee can, and in that can it stayed till your granddad, Dane Coolidge, was called upon by his country to go overseas and fight. Germans, once again, it's time to call it World War II. Great-grandfather gave this watch to your granddad for good luck. Unfortunately, Dane's luck wasn't as good as his old man's. Dane was a Marine, and he was killed, along with all the other Marines at the Battle of Wake Island. Granddad was facing death. He knew it. None of those boys had any illusions, but they were leaving that island alive, so... Three days before the Japanese took the island, your granddad asked a gunner on an Air Force transport named Wanaki, a man he'd never met before in his life, to deliver to his infant son, we'd never seen in the flesh, his gold watch. Three days later, your granddad was dead, but Wanaki kept his word. After the war was over, he paid a visit to your grandmother, delivering to your infant father his dad's gold watch. This watch. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down on Hanoi. That pause right there. I didn't know this until today. That was Christopher Walken forgetting the line. <laughs> and it all works so perfectly in the construct of the scene that you don't even know. But he's literally trying to think of what his next line is in that long pause. And they kept it because it just, you fucked up, but you fucked up in a way that was great. So mm -hmm. we're okay with this. And, and that's the beauty of, of Tarantino, again, as a filmmaker, is he didn't get locked into the idea of how something was supposed to sound. He had this beautiful mistake that he knew was better than expected, mm -hmm. and he kept it. Some filmmakers get locked into their idea of how something's supposed to be. And I think that really illustrates what a collaborative filmmaker Tarantino can be. Mm -hmm. Dad's gold watch. This watch. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down on that. Hanoi was captured, put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew 
that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright, so he hid it. In one place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He'd give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass, two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I gave the watch to you. We'll be back to hindsight after this brief break. Have you ever uh, heard of the Nuzzle House podcast? Nah, probably not. Which is why I've decided to stand here in the middle of this cow pasture holding this creepy music box because they were the uh, only sound effects I could find on the internet to tell you about it. Let me, a divorced man recording in my basement, read you tales you were uh, never going to read yourself anyway. Join the one-man book club and steal my opinion so you too can sound like you have a unique opinion on literature. You can find my podcast at NuzzleHouse.com or look for NuzzleHouse on your podcast app of choice. Ah, uh, beautiful, aren't they? What's going on, everyone? This is your girl, Julene, host of It Goes Down in the PM. We talk about everything from work, motherhood, local celebrities to comic books. Tune in every Friday at 1 o'clock to find out what really goes down in the PM. Hey there, this is Frankie Sparks. And this is Scott Eisenberg. We're married. And we have a podcast called Shoot the Flick. Every week, Scott and I introduce each other to a new movie the other one has never seen. We talk about it, give our thoughts on it, and also share some behind-the-scenes fun facts. We want you guys to come along and enjoy the movies with us. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at ShootTheFlick, and check out our weekly episodes every single Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and pretty much anywhere else you can find a podcast. Come and listen to us now as Frankie and I Shoot Shoot the the Flick! This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy. And we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating, while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a follow. So we're in the go watch section. I think I can now state my my biggest takeaway from this film, which is that Butch is one of the top five dumbest characters in the history of cinema. (laughs) Every time I watch this movie, I'm yelling at the screen how stupid this dude is. For going back for the watch? Not no, not just going back for the watch. Going back for the watch, getting your watch, then eating some fucking pop tarts, then killing a dude in your own apartment, and then going back to your car. You can drive away. No, he drives back in front of his apartment instead of going the opposite way. 
And then he sees, we'll get to it, but then he sees Ving Rains in the middle of the street. Runs that fucker he, over. <laughs> he runs him over by getting destroyed by an oncoming car. It's all, and then he gets away again from Zed and he goes back in to save the man that's trying to kill him. I mean, that's Just dumb, 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 dumb. That's honorable. Him going back to save the guy is honorable. A lot of honorable word. things are stupid. Yes, that is also true. Somebody that was uh, Ryan, um, who was on the the show a couple months ago, actually made a connection that I never really made before. That like you have this whole setup where you know Christopher Walken's character talks about all the you know the conflict that has surrounded this watch, and this was Butch's war moment. This was the story Butch can tell his grandkid when he hands the watch down to mm. him. And I'd never really just made that connection before. And I thought it was kind of, it, it frames that, that scene a little, or that whole sequence a little better. And, and the one thing that's kind of cool about the gold watch for me is if you watch this sequence, it's kind of like a mini horror movie. If you, <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, it plays out like a horror movie because they end up in the, in the, the basement of the pawn shop with Zed and the gimp. And it goes to some really, really weird places. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the pacing of it, 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 it the pacing isn't that far off from like your typical slasher film. It's kind of neat. I always appreciate that when I watch it. Well, what happens, like we like they said, um Butch and uh Butch and Marcellus are fighting in the middle of the street. And they fight all the way up until a cop kind of knocks them both out and drags them to a pawn shop. And the pawn shop is owned by a guy named Zed. And the cop says, we're going to, you know, we're going to deal with you in a second, but we're going to take him first. And they take him downstairs. They take Marcel's downstairs and they, they are sexually assaulting him. And a gimp is being left there to watch uh, Butch. Butch knocks out the gimp and goes upstairs, but he hears Marcel still getting assaulted. And so I'm just paraphrasing this again because, you know, it's sexual assault. Um, but he hears Marcellus and he's, you know, you, you want to help somebody in a situation like that. So he starts looking for weapons. And again, he pulls out the Hattori Hanzo Katana. Na, 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 na. Shoot, share. You lie. Um, and he comes back downstairs and... Yeah, the cop catches the worst of it, but not quite, because then this conversation happens. Step aside, whoop. Hard pipe hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here. 
with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I ain't through with you by damn sight. I'ma get medieval on your ass. I mean, what now between me and you? Oh, that what now? I tell you what now between me and you. There is no me in you. Not no more. So we cool? Yeah, we cool. Two things. Don't tell nobody about this. This shit is between me, you, and Mr. Soon to be living the rest of his short ass life in agonizing pain, rapist here. It ain't nobody else's business. Two, you leave town tonight, right now. And when you're gone, you stay gone, or you be gone. You lost all your LA privileges, deal? Deal. Get your ass out of here. Yeah. So he uh, takes a motorcycle because his car got all banged up and he rides home to get his uh, girlfriend, Fabian, who he actually, this whole thing was Fabian's fault because she forgot his watch back at his old apartment. And he was like, I only asked you to bring one thing. I only asked you to bring the watch. You didn't bring the watch. Now I got to go home and get it. She was like, I'm sorry. I do not condone uh, domestic abuse. Um, but here's the thing in this in this situation, and refer he didn't hit or anything, not that anything like that. But when it's life and death situation like this, and I gotta go back and get something into the I face can, of death that I am not going to not get. I can <laughs> I can understand why he got angry and threw the TV mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in this particular situation, and then he quickly came to his senses and was like, you know what, actually. It was my fault. I didn't explain to you how important this thing was to me. Exactly. And you know what? For a 1995 Quentin Tarantino movie, that's relatively progressive mm-hmm. for a man to do that. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm not expecting to see that in many movies in the 90s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of a man saying, I was wrong. I fucked up. Even yeah. when it wasn't, he didn't actually fuck up that bad. He did tell her, <laughs> I need to watch. Don't forget to watch. At least from his point of view, he did. So he hops on Zed's bike and he goes to pick up Fabian from the hotel that they were hiding out at. After he decides to throw the match, the uh, odds against him went up uh, considerably. So he got rich off of uh, lying to Marcellus and actually knocking out this other dude, but he actually ended up killing him. He was like, I don't feel bad about killing the dude at all. He should have been a better fighter. Even though at the beginning, when he found out that he was dead, he did apologize to the other fighter. He did say, I'm sorry for killing you. So so that did happen. Um, but he goes back and he picks up uh, Fabian after this all done on the chopper. And Fabian's like, who's 
whose bike is this? And he's like, it's not a bike, baby. It's a chopper. And she was like, well, whose chopper is this? And he's like, it's Zed's chopper. Well, where's Zed? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. Cue the music. Cue the music. Um, then they go back to the apartment complex where uh, Vincent, and we had just saw Vincent get killed. Are we supposed to believe the cops never went to Butch's house to see this dead man on the toilet? And by the way, did you notice that every time Vincent goes to the bathroom, something shitty happens? Mm-hmm. Every <laughs> single time. He gets shot coming out the bathroom. He, uh, uh, Mia, um, what's her name? Um, Mia. Yeah, she Mia overdoses in the bathroom, yeah. She ODs, and then in the restaurant, the stick-up happens. Mm-hmm. Every time. I just, I just hold it. Um, but the last <laughs> time was the worst time. Um, and so they go back to the apartment uh, where uh, Jules and Vincent have just shot Brett all to hell. A guy bursts out the bathroom on them that they don't expect. Uh, and he shoots, I would say wildly, except it was accurately because when they move away from the wall, there's literally a hole where Jules was standing that didn't go through him, but it's like where his heart should have been at. Um, and that really has him fucked up. Um, and so they are, They're talking about it. I want you to acknowledge that this is a fucking miracle. I want you to tell folks that this is a fucking miracle. And they look around. They're like, hey. um, Marvin's still alive. Yo, Marvin, you going to come with us? (laughs) Yeah, whatever. You know, let's go. So he hops in the car with them. And they're talking about how it's a fucking miracle and everything. And they're still discussing it on the way back to wherever they were going to go initially. The problem is uh, John Travolta, Vincent, uh, turns to see what Marvin's opinion is on this miracle thing with his gun in his hand. And they hit a pothole in the road causing Vincent to pull the trigger, which causes him to shoot Marvin in the fucking face. (laughs) Terrible terrible gun control. Right? Like, where's the safety at, homie? You're in the car now. And never point a gun at somebody that you don't intend to shoot. Like... (laughs) I think you were just cleaning up loose ends. But If you watch this movie, Vince is a dumbass. (laughs) Yes. They They were remarkably calm for that happening on the road because I'm pretty sure I would have crashed. You imagine how loud it was? I, I would have. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I would have. Uh, something would have happened. But um, they are forced to take care of the situation because now the car's interior is full of blood and they're in bright daylight. So they go to Jules' friend, Jimmy. And I wish there was a backstory to find out how Jules and Jimmy met. Because this grouping, like, Jimmy and Jules don't seem like, this seems like something where, okay, I knew him back in college sort of thing. And it was like, okay, you know, all right. So I think there might have been a connection, like, Jules might have gone to the hospital at one point and met Bonnie 
Mm. And then through Bonnie, he connected with Jimmy. Yeah. That was always my kind of thinking. So they pull into Jimmy's garage and uh, Bonnie's going to be home from work pretty soon and she's going to freak out. And Jules is trying to talk to Quentin about, or sorry, Habit, trying to talk to Jimmy about it. And this happens. Mm. God damn, Jimmy. This some serious gourmet shit. Me and Vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried Taster's Choice, right? <laughs> and he brings this serious gourmet shit on us. What flavor is this? Knock it off, Julie. What? I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. I know how good it is. Bonnie goes shopping, she buys shit. I buy the gourmet expensive stuff because when I drink it, I want to taste it. But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. It's the dead nigger in my garage. Oh, Jimmy, don't even worry well, no, about it. No, 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 don't think about anything. I want to ask you a question. When you came pulling in here, did you notice a sign on the front of my house that said dead nigger storage? Jimmy, you know I ain't seen no shit. Did you notice a sign in the front of my house that said dead nigger storage? No. I didn't. You know why you didn't see that sign? Because it ain't there, because storing dead niggers ain't my fucking business. That's why. Well, Jimmy, we're not going to store them. Don't you fucking realize, man, that if Bonnie comes home and finds a dead body in her house, I'm going to get divorced. All right, no marriage counseling, no trial separation. I'm going to get fucking divorced, okay? And I don't want to get fucking divorced. No, man, you know, fuck. I mean, I want to help you, but I don't want to lose my wife doing it, all right? Jimmy, Jimmy, she ain't going to leave Don't us. fucking Jimmy me, Jules. Okay? Don't fucking Jimmy me. There's nothing that you're gonna say that's gonna make me forget that I love my wife. Is there? Now look, you know, she comes home from work in about an hour and a half. Graveyard shift at the hospital. You gotta make some phone calls. You gotta call some people. Well then do it. And then get the fuck out of my house before she gets here. Hey, that's cool in the gang. You know, we don't wanna fuck your shit up. All I wanna do is call my people, get them bring us in, that's all. You don't want to fuck my shit up. You're fucking my shit up right now. You're going to fuck my shit up big time if Bonnie comes home. So just do me that favor, all right? The phone is in my bedroom. I suggest you get going. Okay, so Jolene uh, from the It Goes Down the PM asked me to keep counting how many times. It was four, Jolene, four times that he references dead nigger storage. And I can actually, as an adult, when I was 14 and black, I was like, you know, Kind of pushing it to the hilt. As an, an adult married man <laughs> with a wife who works night shifts, <laughs> I can understand the trepidation in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And if you have, if, if you, he's like, he's like, do you know what's going to happen to me, bro? Do you understand what's going to happen to me if this woman walks in this house? And sees a dead black because wasn't his wife black too in the movie? Mm-hmm. And sees a dead black man in my house. No, that's not going to end well <laughs> at all. I love that shot too. The what if scenario where they're caught carrying him. That wouldn't end well. <laughs> not at all. Oh, I understand. And Samuel L. Jackson up here talking to him about his coffee. Oh, some good, some good shit, some good gourmet shit you got. 
Jimmy's like, bro, what are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about how good my coffee is? Let's talk about the dead motherfucker in my goddamn garage. <laughs> There's blood in your hair. And he called him Julie. So I don't think that he met him through Bonnie. I don't. I think they knew each other in college or something. Mm. There's blood in your hair, Julie. I don't think Jules went to college. That's just my... Maybe high school? Mm. Maybe through some... Uh, Big age unsavor- there, unsavorable, yeah. unsavorable um, dealings. Unsav- yeah. So, after- unsavory, I should say. Well, actually, unsavory. cool note about this, cool little bit of trivia. You guys talked about From Dust Till Dawn last episode. Um, Robert Rodriguez was the director for this scene since mm. Tarantino was uh, in front of the camera. So he wanted somebody that he trusted. And so Robert Rodriguez sort of did a little uh, stepped in shot the scene for him, and then Tarantino, of course, returned the favor down the line uh, in Sin City when uh, he directed the scene where um, Clive Owen's talking to the uh, dead head of Benicio Del Toro. I, I, I just love their partnership. Yeah. I do. It feels a lot like Brandon and I. You don't want to fuck my shit up. You're fucking my shit up right now. <laughs> You're going to fuck my shit up big time if Bonnie comes home. So just do me that favor, all right? The phone is in my bedroom. I suggest you get going. <laughs> she comes home. What do you think she'll do? Oh, no fucking shit, she'll freak. That ain't no kind of answer. I mean, you know I don't, how much, a lot or a little. You got to appreciate what an explosive element this Bonnie situation is. I mean, she comes home from a hard day's work, finds a bunch of gangsters in the kitchen doing a bunch of gangster shit. Ain't no telling what she's liable to do. <sighs> I've grasped that, Jules. All I'm doing is contemplating the ifs. I don't want to hear about no motherfucking ifs. All I want to hear from your ass is, you ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there, chill them niggas out, and wait for the cavalry, which should be coming directly. You ain't got no problem, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there and chill them niggas out, and wait for the wolf, which should be coming directly. You sending the wolf? Feel better, motherfucker. Shit, Negro. That's all you had to say. <laughs> the wolf is the baddest motherfucker in the world. Like, seriously. They actually, I, I do know that they wanted to make a, they were thinking about doing a show about the wolf specifically. Um, the wolf comes in and he's so cool about everything that, you know, he, he gets things cleared up damn near immediately. Um, I know Ven Rames is tired, mad that he looks so imposing, because Ven Rames is classically trained actor. Like he went to Yale School of Drama. He did. Like, yes, he went to Yale School of Drama. Like, and he's always casted as a, a gangster because he looks. I mean, it, part of it might be racism in Hollywood, but to be fair. He looks fucking intimidating as shit. Like, if I'm going to cast, what am I supposed to cast Ving Rhames at if he's not a gangster? If I look at the, him, the guy in from uh, the guy in uh, uh, what was that? Dawn of the Dead remake, which is still one of my favorite zombie movies. He was in that. Um, I don't remember what role he played in it, but he was he had a big role in that movie, and it was a good movie. But other than that, no, I can't think of shit that he's played in where he wasn't Bing Rames. Oh, shit. Um, nope, that wasn't him. That was a dude from the Green Mile who was in Armageddon. Michael Clark Duncan. Yeah, rest in peace. 
Javen Reigns looks like he has to play a tough guy, somebody you don't want to fuck with. Like, can you imagine him as like the romantic doofus black character, like Anthony Anderson character? No, he can't play that type of character. Look at him. I think he would. Oh, that was another thing. Um, um, what's her face? Um, uh, not Jimmy. Who was? What was the dude's name that he got the um, drugs from? Lance. 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 Lance's wife. I read about this. Uh, Quentin Tarantino wanted it to be Pam Greer, but he said that nobody would believe somebody could just push around and talk to Pam Greer like that. It wouldn't be believable, so he didn't cast her. That and yeah, and and then he promised that he would write his next movie with a role for her, and that ended up being Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah, is a movie made completely for her, which shows again Tarantino's loyalty to his to his friends. The Goods, Live Hard, Sell Hard. That was a Ving Rain movie, and I know he wasn't a gangster in that fucker. God, I don't even remember him in that movie. Me neither. Jeremy Piven. Like, they have to sell a certain amount of cars in, like, 30 days or something. Yep, and DJ Request. (laughs) Yeah. I I haven't seen that movie. I I think I watched it, like, on Netflix a million years ago. And it was one of those ones. I didn't know Ving was in that. I'll have to go watch it. Yeah, one of those ones where you saw it and it was like, okay, I saw it. That's that's more than enough. Um, but the wolf comes in and the wolf takes total control. Um, he takes total control to the point where Jimmy's like, "That's a cool motherfucker." Like, yeah, you like you you like my coffee? Yeah. So he takes them and he has them put blankets upholstery um, into the car to cover up. Well, he has them go out and clean up as much of the blood as they can out of the car. And then he gets some upholstery and he has them lay that in the interior of the car. So then if a cop is far away, they won't be able to tell that there's that it's upholstery. Um, then he has them before he has them do that. He has them stripped down, butt naked and, and sprays them down with water hoses and the like. 19 or 20 year old lady that's with the wolf is gleefully saying they look like a couple of dorks after they get dressed up in Jimmy's old clothing, which is the banana slug shirt and something else that they wore to the bar to see Marcellus later on in the day. Uh, And then they drive the car to the uh, impound or to the uh, junkyard to get junked. And that's what the wolf does. He literally disposes of shit. And he's the best. And I really wish they had gone ahead with doing a movie for him because Harvey Keitel is a motherfucking gangster and he deserves all of his due. Mm -hmm. Uh, After that, Jules tells Vincent that he's sick of this shit. He's going to retire from a life of crime and he's just going to uh, walk the earth, like he said, like, uh, like the guy from Kung Fu. He feels like the thing that happened at the apartment was a um, a, a act a, a miracle, and he wants Victor or Vincent to admit as such. Um, Vincent's like, so you're going to actually leave and do what? And he's like, walk walk the earth. And Vincent's like, you know what? I I gotta I gotta I gotta take a I gotta take a shit. And so while they're talking, this is when Honey Baby and Pumpkin are also talking about, you know, um, we're going to rob this fucker. Um, Don't move or I'll execute every last one of you. And it all really 
marries together. And the first time you see this movie, it is so worth it to see the beginning and the end of this movie. In the bag. in a case my boss is dirty laundry your boss makes you do his laundry when he wants it clean sounds like a shit job funny i was thinking the same thing open it afraid i can't do that i didn't hear you yes you did what's going on so we got a vigilante in our midst shoot him in the face i hate to shatter your ego but this ain't the first time i've had a gun pointed at me you don't take your fucking head <laughs> off that case it'll be your last Stop causing problems! You'll get us all killed. Give him what you got and get him out of here. Shut the fuck up, fat man. This ain't none of your goddamn business. Be cool, honey bunny. Be cool. No problem. I got it under control. Now, I'm going to count to three. If you don't open that case, I'm going to unload in your fucking face. We clear? I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. God damn it, what is it? <laughs> you let him go! You let him go! Let go of it! Tell that bitch to be cool! Say bitch, be cool! Say bitch, be cool! Tell that fucking bitch to chill! Be cool, Chill that fucking bitch out! Chill out, honey, buddy! Chill out! Honey bunny. All right, now tell her it's gonna be all right. It's gonna be all right. Promise her. I promise. Tell her to chill. Just chill out, honey bunny. All right, now tell me your name. Yolanda. All right, now Yolanda. We're not gonna do anything stupid, are we? Don't you hurt him. Nobody's gonna hurt anybody. We're all gonna be like three little Fonzies here. And what's Fonzie like? Come on, Yolanda, what's Fonzie like? It's cool. What? Cool. Correct the mundo. And that's what we're gonna be. We're gonna be cool. Now, Ringo. I'm gonna count to three. And when I count three, I want you to let go of your gun, put your palms flat on the table, and sit your ass down. But when you do it, you do it cool. You ready? One, two, Okay, now you let him go! Yolanda, I thought you were gonna be cool. Now, when you yell at me, it makes me nervous. And when I get nervous, I get scared. And when motherfuckers get scared, that's when motherfuckers accidentally get shot. Just know, you hurt him, you die. Well, that seems to be the situation. But I don't want that. And you don't want that. And Ringo here definitely doesn't want that. So let's see what we can do. Now, here's the situation. 
Normally, both your assets would be dead as fucking fried chicken. But you happen to pull this shit while I'm in a transitional period, and I don't want to kill you. I want to help you. But I can't give you this case, because it don't belong to me. Besides, I've been through too much shit over this case this morning to just hand it over to your dumb ass. Vincent! <laughs> Be cool! Yolanda, it's cool, baby! It's cool! We still just talking. Come on, point the gun at me! Point the gun at me! There you go. Now, Vincent, you just hang back and don't do a goddamn thing. Tell her we're still cool. Still cool, honey bunny. How we doing, baby? I, I gotta go pee. I'm gonna go home. Just hang in there, baby. You're doing great. I'm proud of you. And Ringo's proud of you. It's almost over. Tell her you're proud of her. Proud of you, honey bunny. I love you. I love you too, honey bunny. Now, I want you to go in that bag and find my wallet. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad motherfucker. That's my bad motherfucker. Open it up. Take out the money. Count it. How much is there? Fifteen hundred dollars. Okay, put it in your pocket. It's yours. Now with the rest of those wallets in the register. That makes this a pretty successful little score, huh? Jules, you give that fucking Nimrod $1,500 and I'll shoot him on general principle. No, Yolanda, Yolanda, he ain't gonna do a goddamn motherfucking thing. Bitch, shut the fuck up! Shut up! Come on, Yolanda, stay with me, baby. Now, I ain't giving it to him, Vincent. I'm buying something for my money. You wanna know what I'm buying, Ringo? What? Your life. I'm giving you that money so I don't have to kill your ass. You read the Bible, Ringo? Not regularly, no. Well, there's this passage I got memorized. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I've been saying that shit for years. And if you heard it, that meant your ass. I never gave much thought to what it meant. I just thought it was some cold-blooded shit to say to a motherfucker before I popped a cap in his ass. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak, and I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm
I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. I did that monologue my freshman year of college for my drama class. And it hits even more now than it did then. Um, when you really think about the decisions that you can make between being somebody who leads people to a shepherd or somebody who causes chaos and it that's 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 the reason why it Rufus in Kill Bill Volume 2 strikes me because he found a way to not only be a, a, a quiet unassuming person and a completely different he went from LA to Texas um where he plays organ in a church. Nobody knows what he was doing. Nobody knows anything. Um, strangely enough, he was killed by assassins when he was an assassin of sorts, a hitman. Um, also in, in Kill Bill, it just hit me, Brandon, that uh, Jules goes from Los Angeles to Texas and becomes an organ player, while Beatrice goes from Texas to Pasadena to beat up Vernita Green. But yeah, that's where the movie ends. I, I had to play that entire scene out because I think that it is such a wonderfully written scene. And it's by and large a nine minute monologue. So yeah yeah sorry sorry that's one of my favorites period yeah i loved it craig you got any thoughts craig who's your mvp craig hold on hold on you're muted there yeah we there we go oh man mvp of the of the movie mm -hmm. i mean for me it's got to be Sam Jackson and Jules. It's he he bookends the movie really. Mm -hmm. He's the only character that really gets a a true deep arc, where the character's different at the end of the movie than he is at the beginning. So for me, that's that's my MVP. Um, but this movie, like I said, every performance, every actor, every person who was cast in their role. Absolutely nailed it. Brilliant film. Brilliant yeah. film. And and I'm I'm so happy you guys are devoting a month to Tarantino and uh you know invited me on for this pulp fiction episode. I re I really do appreciate it. There I always is, have a lot of fun talking this movie. There is not a wasted character in this movie at all. 
like from the ground up, everybody does a phenomenal job. Even the uh, restaurant owner or the 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 manager, mm-hmm. like they're not even pointing the guns at you, and yet you're screaming, "Just let him go!" I'm like, shut the fuck <laughs> up, fat man. It, it all is just amazing. Absolutely, Brandon. Who's your MVP? Butch. Um. <laughs> Bruce Willis was motivated. Uh, I know Jeff texted me yesterday. He was like, Bruce Willis really got up for this film. And I was mm-hmm. like, yes. He wanted, he, something about this script, because sometimes when Bruce is hit and miss, when he's into it, he can be great. And when he's not into it, you can tell. He was into this role. And he he was doing all his little Bruce Willis, little talking to himself things. and. Mm-hmm. But you know, he he did the love interest thing. He did the husband thing. He did the I gotta, I gotta fight through this type thing. He did the hero. I'm gonna come back and save this person. I don't like thing. Like he played like many different personality types in this in this movie, uh, and he knocked it out the park. So Bruce and, Willis is the MVP for me. And actually, this movie saved Bruce Willis. Uh, before this movie, Bruce's uh, movies prior to this were The Bonfire of the Vanities, Mortal Thoughts, The Inimitable Hudson Hawk, (laughs) Billy Bathgate, The Last Boy Scout, The Player, Death Becomes Her, and Striking Distance. The only movie out of that group that I would say is even close to a classic is Death Becomes Her. Um, the Last Boy Scout is a fun movie with him and Damon Wayans. We'll discuss that one later. But then he did Pulp Fiction. And I'm not going to say that after that he went back up. I'm just going to say that after he did Pulp Fiction, he did Color of Night. He did Die Hard with the Vengeance. He did 12 Motherfucking Monkeys. He did Last Man Standing. He did The Fifth Element. That was the next five movies. And don't forget this little movie called Armageddon. <laughs> so the, the movies prior and the movies after are like night, night and day. Um, my MVP is likely going to be Jules as well, because I just thought that all of his, he's just so magnetic in this movie. Samuel L. Jackson was just at his finest. I mean, of course, he's Samuel L. Jackson, so it's not like he went downhill from here. But this was this was the equivalent of Eminem saying you only get one shot. And he took it and ran with it. And I thought that he was the coolest. The the thing I could say about him is I thought he was the coolest motherfucker in the world. I he thought was Jules cool. was just that motherfucker. Like amazing. Amazing job. Like, I could see this movie being done with somebody else playing Vincent. I could see that. They said um, Madsen, Michael Madsen, Mark Madsen. Michael Madsen, yeah. Michael Madsen. The other one's a basketball player. Michael Madsen was uh, originally, uh, he could have played Vincent Vega. Uh, They had other people who could have done it. And then John Travolta took it. Other people could have done that role. I can, John Travolta get an Oscar for this? Wasn't he nominated? He, he, he got nominated, yeah. Well, Sam Jackson did, too, and uh, and Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. All three, okay. Yeah. And <laughs> Sam Jackson, in my opinion, if Ed Wood didn't come out that year and Martin Landau hadn't gotten nominated for Ed Wood p- playing Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. any other year Sam Jackson wins that Oscar. 
without hesitation. It's un- it's unfortunate that he was up against Martin Landau that year. This movie also only cost eight million dollars, and the eight make- million dollars was because Bruce Willis. <laughs> Five of that went to Bruce Willis, and they made over two hundred million. That's dope. I'm sorry, I stepped all on your on your on your fact, Brandon. I see you looking at me. I love oh you, no, bro. I was looking at something else. I was excited about that part. That's a dope ass thought. Like that, you could take. The only other movie I could think of that had such a low budget that ended up being such a phenomenon like that was The Blair Witch Project. Yeah. Yeah. You can go back to the late 70s. John Carpenter's Halloween was another one that the return on investment was like astronomical. And that's why we've had 8 million Halloween movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. I, God, that was great. Craig, you want to tell them again where they can find you out on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, if you have any shout outs. Oh, and be sure to, in the um, chat, put all your information so then I can put it into the show notes. Right on. But, yeah. So the, the podcast, like I said, first Friday every month, conversations at Jackrabbit Slims. If you just type that into um, your search engine of choice, you'll find the show or your podcaster of choice. On Facebook, uh, or on, I'm sorry, on Twitter, I'm Mr. Craig Cohen. That's uh, Mr. with an MR. And then uh, the show uh, Twitter is Podcast Pulp. Um, and um, fa- there is a Facebook group, not very active. Again, if you just go on Facebook and search Conversations at Jackrabbit Slims, you'll find it. Again, thank you, Derek and Brandon, for having me on. Uh, I'll never get tired of talking this movie. You know, like I said, when I closed my eyes, when we were making this list initially, and Brandon, you need to add more movies to this list, fam, because it's only getting longer. And, huh? I know. Yeah, I just, I just, this is an aside. This is an aside before we close this out. I just added a Coen Brothers month. So we have Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Lady Killers, Raising Arizona and Dark Man. You gotta make a month, otherwise you're gonna be living my life for a while. Um anyhow, the next movie on the list. Ah, what happens when you take a German and you put him in a place where he's a bounty hunter and he needs somebody to point out the bounties? We're talking Django Unchained. I I don't understand why I love this movie nearly as much as I do, but I still say that when we talked, and I went back and listened to it, Brandon, when we talked about Die Hard, I said Hans Gruber was the second best villain of all time. When we talked Django Unchained, we might meet the first. Oh, yeah, he's pretty, Leonardo's pretty great in this. Leo's pretty great. Thank y'all so much for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. If y'all want to leave a review, uh, you can leave a five-star review with Podchaser. The cool thing about Podchaser is you can leave a review for this episode or for the show as a whole. Um, You can also reach us on Twitter at Hindsight Reviews, R-E-V-U-E-S. Brandon is on Twitter at that cool blick nerd. That's B-L-K. I'm on Twitter at Rashani. Uh, And we have a Facebook group, uh, Hindsight Movie Reviews. Go check us out there. And you can email us at hindsightmoviereviews, R-E-V-U-E-S, at gmail.com. 
Thank you so much for listening. We greatly do appreciate each and every one of y'all. Um, y'all have a wonderful day. We'll holler at you later. Peace. for hindsight is coffee by cambo smith and it's from the free music archive this is single simulcast shit negro that's all you had to say